I would I like you to grab your copy of God's Word and this morning turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 as we are going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus and we're going to focus on the fact that what we are presented with here in Acts chapter 2 at the teaching and preaching of Peter is that it's all about Jesus. Everything that is taking place, everything that Peter points to is all about Jesus. And I want to show you that from these verses that we're going to look at this morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 39. And do not get worried that that is a lot of verses. We're going to make some progress through it, but we're going to cover quite a bit during that time. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 39. If you're physically able, we do church aerobics. I want you to stand with me one more time out of honor for God's word because we love the fact that this morning we get to read God's word in our own language. And so we're thankful for that. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Let's just read the first three or so verses as we get started this morning. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study these words, I pray that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to take these verses and teach us and apply them to our hearts that we might worship you, that we might give Jesus glory, and that, Father, this morning you might receive praise for what you've done. Lord, I pray you'll feed your sheep today by your word and show us that it's all about Jesus this morning. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated for just a moment. So in Acts chapter 2, what you are seeing is the birth of the church as we know it. That the new era has been ushered in by Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. And now what we find is on the day of Pentecost, as, as Peter stands up to preach, this is the first sermon of the church age. This is the first sermon that takes place after the birth of the church. And you can imagine that if this is the first sermon that leaps then there might be some important things we ought to catch from these verses. Peter might tell us what is of primary importance for the church moving forward. And need I remind you that it's only been about 50 days since Peter had denied Jesus himself. And now here he stands. In front of the crowd to preach what it's all about. And the first place he goes is to turn their eyes to Jesus. He says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless Men, What we are confronted with right away when we look at what is most important to understand about the church and about who Jesus is, is we are reminded straight away that death is a reality. 
that Jesus is going to die, that death happens. And I know that you and I spend most of our, our days and our lives trying to avoid thinking about the fact that one day we're going to die. That is a tough thing to remember. It's a tough thing to have to dwell upon. But the Bible tells us clearly from the very beginning that death is a reality. And the reason why death is a reality is because sin is a reality. Everything that's happening in this story about the crucifixion of Jesus, his burial, his resurrection, all of it is tied to the fact that death is real because sin is real. But God's doing something about it. In Christ, God is accomplishing something in the midst of the understanding that sin and death are real. So right off the bat, can I convince you, hopefully you can see, that death is a reality. I hope you understand that one day you're going to die. If you're in rejection of that, I hate to break it to you, you're going to die one day. And the reason you're going to die is because sin is a reality. It's because sin entered in, so death entered in. So death reminds us that sin is present, that it's real, and that it's serious. But God is gracious and loving. And merciful, and you see it no better place than the face of Jesus. Let me show you why it's all about Jesus. Number one, verse 22, we are told that number one, Jesus was sent by the Father. You know what this is talking about? When it says Jesus was sent by the Father, do you know what event that's talking about? It's called the incarnation. It's called the fact that Jesus, just so you know, Jesus didn't come into being when he took on flesh, when he was born. He always has been. Always has been. In fact, we're told from the word of God that Jesus is the agent of creation. That God created and he did it through Jesus. So Jesus was, when you read Genesis chapter 1, guess who's there? Jesus is there. You don't get to see him, but he's there. And so when he takes on human flesh, Jesus isn't coming into being. Jesus is becoming a human being, but he has always existed. And the reason is because Jesus tells us in John's gospel. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life doesn't exist apart from him because he is life. There's never been a time when Jesus wasn't. But our sin was so serious and death was such a reality that you know what God did? He sent his son. He sent Jesus in the form of a human being. Is this hard to understand? Yup. Are you going to have a hard time explaining this to people? Yep. Is it any less true? No. The word of God centers around the fact that God loves us so much that Jesus was sent by the Father. And notice Peter addresses the men of Israel. These are the people who should have recognized the Messiah when he showed up. These are the ones who should have known better. And, and Peter tells us that Jesus was attested to in verse 22. He was attested to or endorsed by God. That means that Jesus was the display of God. He, when God. When God sent his son, God was displaying himself in Jesus taking human form. He was showing that he was God in the flesh, absolutely. That when Jesus took on flesh, it was God displaying himself and showing that Jesus was God. He was attested to by God, Peter says, with mighty works and wonders and signs done in their midst. Notice he says, Jesus was attested to by God. One thing you're going to notice is as Peter is preaching, he's constantly talking about God's role in the whole thing. 
that God sent his son, that God attested to his son. And notice, even Peter goes so far as to, as he's addressing the men of Israel, refer to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Just so you know, that's a put down for most people. Nazareth wasn't a place that anyone expected anything great to come from. Jesus, the one who no one would see anything great about, is the one who has been sent by the Father to rescue lost people. Even though they rejected him, God was the one who sent him. And Jesus' miracles, we're told, proved he was who he said he was. That Jesus showed by signs and mighty works that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. Jesus wasn't just out there going, poof, look what I can do. Poof, look what I can do. Hey, I can walk on water. Isn't everybody great? Yeah, everybody thinks I'm great because I do that. No, he wasn't doing it just to do magical acts. He was doing it to show that he was God in the flesh. Sent by the Father to rescue. Number two, as Jesus was sent by the Father, showing that it's all about Jesus. Number two, Jesus was sent to die. And be raised. Verses 23 and 24 tell us that Jesus came to this earth. He took on flesh for the express purpose by the plan of God to die and be raised again. Jesus was sent by the Father, incarnation, to die, crucifixion. And he wasn't to die because he was guilty of anything. He was to die even though he was innocent. And he was to die in place of people who were guilty. This is how much God loves us, is he wouldn't make you pay for your sin. He would put that on Jesus instead. See, Peter wants you to understand that the whole backdrop to all this is Jesus. He is the central focus of everything God is doing. He was sent by the Father, and he was sent to die and be raised. Notice what we're told in verse 23. That this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. There are three key words there. We're told that Jesus was delivered up by God, crucified and killed by sinful people, and raised up by God. This was the predetermined plan of God for his son. When Jesus showed up, God wasn't going, well, let's see how this works out. Let's see if this works. Let's throw something out there and see if it can take care of the problem. No, when God the Father sent his son Jesus in human form, there was a predetermined plan of what was going to take place. And that predetermined plan was Jesus was going to be delivered up. He was going to be killed. And he was going to be raised again. Nothing, no one could stop that from happening. See, this blows my mind. That people who thought they were finally putting an end to Jesus were actually accomplishing the very plan God had. That he would be delivered up by God over into the hands of sinful men. What's that pointing us to? The sovereignty of God. That he is in control of all things. He is able to bring about that which he desires to do. And the fact that Jesus was delivered up means that God gave the son to these lawless men. He gave, here he is just for you. God was in control. It was a definite plan. He was delivered up. He was crucified and killed. And just so you know, just because God delivered his son up into the hands of lawless men doesn't mean that the lawless men weren't guilty. 
See, there's a balance going on here between the fact that God is in control of all things and yet we are still guilty of sin and held responsible for our sin. We don't get to say, well, God made me do it. I can't do anything about it. Satan made me do it. Can't do anything about it. Mm -mm. God is in control of all things and yet we are found guilty of our sin, that we rebelled against him. But none of that is going to change the predetermined plan of God that Jesus would be delivered up into the hands of sinful men. He would be crucified and killed. And gloriously, he would be raised up by God. Again, showing the sovereignty of God that even in the face of sin, God is able to raise his son and to conquer death. And God used lawless men to accomplish his plan. See, just so you know, the resurrection of Jesus is the climax of the redemptive purposes of God. It is the climax of all of redemptive history that Jesus would rise from the dead, sets him apart from all others. It is the greatest proof that Jesus was in fact and is in fact today the Messiah that we so desperately need. That even though he was innocent, he would die as our substitute because we were sinners who deserved death. And I think God is pointing us to what matters most because if you look in this section, there is one verse on incarnation, there is one verse on death, and then Peter spends nine verses talking about the resurrection. And in the end, we're told in verse 24 that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God actually gives us the metaphor that death, in this case, is like labor, like a pregnant woman about to give birth. And just so you know, ladies, I've been told that when the baby starts coming, the baby's coming. You, when, the, when, the, when the labor starts and it's on, y'all ladies looking at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. It's on, isn't it? <laughs> It's it going to happen. It has to, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank you, brother. And I'm reminded, okay, just so you know, I'm reminded of something. I, I asked Jody if I could tell it, and I will, because I think I've told it before, but I want to tell it again. Uh, when, we know from personal experience that when the baby's coming, the baby's coming. Because uh, with Samantha, uh, uh, she, she was coming. Jody had been experiencing, like, back pain in the morning. And I had gone to work, and so she had called me up and said, I got back pain. She had a doctor's appointment later that morning. She was, she was close to giving birth, and we're like, okay, well, I'll come home from work, and I'll take you to your doctor's appointment, and we'll see what's going on. So I drive her 15 minutes, 20 minutes into where the hospital was to see her doctor, and I promise you, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of wandering, but I promise you that when we walked into uh, the waiting room with a bunch of people waiting to go to the doctor, and Jody couldn't sit down, Something was up. She, she was just pacing around the room. And sometimes she'd go lean. I saw her at one point leaning up on the wall. Just waiting. You, you ever wonder, you just really wish the doctor would call your name now. It's even worse when you can't get no relief. And you're like, man, this is taking forever. They finally call her back. We go into a room real quick. Lady comes in and tells us something really profound. She says, yeah, you're in labor. But we weren't supposed to deliver at that hospital. She was supposed to deliver at a hospital about 10 minutes up the road. So they said, you're fine. 
Go ahead and get back in the car and drive over to where you're supposed to be. We'll call the doctor and we'll have her meet you over there. When I tell you I had to pull that car up to the little roundabout and help my wife, who was huffing and a puffing, and help her get in the car to say, okay, we're going to go over to the hospital real quick. I pull out of there. And as we are driving, it's it's getting real. And it's bad. And I'm telling you, in a 10-minute drive, I I, I don't think I broke a lot of laws. But I may may have done just a couple, couple. I I may have because I was cruising to the hospital. And I knew it was bad. I knew it, listen, I'm in a Dodge, we've got a Dodge Stratus, because that's where we are in life. If you got a Dodge Stratus, I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying that's where we were in life, we had a Dodge Stratus. So I got my pregnant wife in the front seat, in a Dodge Stratus, we're driving over to the hospital, we about, I can see the hospital, I can see it, it's right over there, but there's no direct road to it, you have to go around it and come back in. And as I pass through one of the last stop signs that were left, we're probably three minutes away. My wife, who I love very much, puts her feet on the dash. Because, and all she keeps saying is, this baby is coming. And I'm saying, no, no, it, the baby cannot. But once you start the process, when the baby's coming, that baby's coming. I peeled into that hospital emergency room. I don't know if I shoved you out of the car. I think some people, somehow we got you inside. I don't know how. And then I had to go park the car. And then I get back in the hospital and we need your insurance card, Mr. Harris. Okay, here's my insurance card. I walk into the room. She's already giving birth. She's already in the process. And Samantha was born four minutes after we arrived. I barely got to be there for it because I had to take a copy of my insurance card. <laughs> Almost missed my baby being born. But when the baby's coming, the baby's coming. The picture we have of Jesus in the tomb is Peter gives us the metaphor of a delivery. The tomb was the womb that Jesus was being born out of into new resurrected life. For Jesus has stepped out of that was him stepping out in resurrection glory. Now just so you know, there was nothing the grave could do to stop that from happening. When Jesus was going to be raised, folks, he was going to be raised. You know why? Because God sent his son, delivered him up. He was crucified by lawless men. But in so doing, he was providing for us salvation that we desperately needed. Can I help you? Nothing can stop Jesus from doing exactly what he wants to do. Brother, nothing can stop Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and he is the life. <laughs> that'll be that'll sit really good when you start eating ham later on today. It's going to be really nice. You're going to be like, ooh, all life is in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Number three, 
real quick. Not only was Jesus sent by the Father, not only, number two, was Jesus sent to die and be raised, but number three, Jesus was promised by the prophets. Because what Peter went on to say was that David had talked about Jesus, that David had prophesied about Christ. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also, uh, also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. See, some people think that, that's Psalm 16. Some people think that David was talking about himself, that he would one day be raised. But here's the, here's the thing. David did die. David did see the grave. David was still dead. So David wasn't talking about David. David was talking about somebody else who would not see corruption, one who would be raised. And guess who that is? That's Jesus. Peter is telling us that the Psalms and the Psalm of David that he talked about was in fact pointing to Christ. Why? Because everything revolves around Jesus. Every single thing is about him. And may I remind you that this was, David prophesied this centuries before Jesus was ever born. He foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. You ever want your mind blown? Read Psalm 22. You know what that is? I believe Psalm 22 is David being able to see through the eyes of Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Because guess what? When Jesus is hanging on the cross, guess what he quotes? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. David was able to see that Jesus would come and that he would be resurrected, that Jesus was in fact the son of David who was promised who would sit on the throne forever. That's number three. Number four, Jesus fulfills David's prophecy. Peter preaches Jesus as the risen Messiah. Notice what he tells us in verse 31. He foresaw, talking about David, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that, you're, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That, that David was talking about the fact that the Messiah would come, and Peter preaches that Jesus is that Messiah who was raised up, who is exalted, who has sent the Spirit for us. Everything revolves around the work of Jesus. And then he says this. He says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter wants you to understand that Jesus' death on the cross, his burial in the grave, was not a sign of his defeat. It, in fact, was pointing to his victory. As he rose from the dead, that he was the one they'd been waiting for. Jesus is the king who can save. He's the Messiah who does rescue. And then finally, number five, Jesus is our only hope for salvation. In verse 37, Peter says that as a result of the fact that Jesus has been sent by the Father, that he's been sent by the predetermined plan of God to be delivered over and crucified and killed and raised, that because of this, there should be a response from people when they hear this. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter and the rest of the apostles said, brothers, what shall we do? That's what they asked them. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of, their, of your sins, and you will receive 
receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What's the proper response? Jesus is the only hope you have and I have to ever be delivered from our sin. We can never do it by our own works, by our own hands. Peter doesn't say, try better, do better, try harder. What Peter says is, believe, trust that Jesus was sent by the Father. He was delivered up and killed and raised by the plan of God. He was the one promised and he fulfilled everything. Believe, believe, believe in him. Not do more works. Trust that Jesus is the only one who can pay the price for you. He's the only one who can take your place. And just so you know, all of us in this room need Jesus because every one of us has sinned. And death is a reality for every person. We need him. Repent and be baptized. We have to trust in the work of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, his ascension, his completed work in our place for our sin to pay the price that we deserved. And we're called to repent or turn away from sin. It's the idea of having a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And then he says, be baptized. What is baptism? It is the first expression of trust in Jesus. And he calls all to respond to this because the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is for all people. And God, in this, I believe, is graciously inviting every one of us. Look at Christ. Believe in him, repent, be baptized, and find the forgiveness for your sin that you desperately need. It's all about Jesus. So here's what I want you to get. Death is a reality because sin is a reality. And not only is sin a reality, sin is serious. It's so serious that it required God sending his own son to pay for it. And just so you know, a just God must punish sin. He has to. A good judge does not let the guilty go unpunished. We call that injustice. God is a just God, and because of that, he has to punish sin. But understand this. God graciously gave his son to be the sacrifice for our sin. And in his resurrection, Jesus has shown that he has, in fact, paid the full price for our sin, and he is victorious over it. And this gift of God demonstrates God's love for us. This gift of Jesus hanging on the cross is what shows us God's love. Romans 5, 8, God has demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jerry Bridges, a theologian, said this, quote, if we want proof of God's love for us, then we must look first at the cross where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us, end quote. If you ever want to know whether God loves you, look at the cross and you'll see his love displayed. So what do I do this morning? Well, I can't assume 
that because you've heard sermons or because you've read the Bible or because you've walked an aisle, I cannot assume that you belong to Jesus. All I can ask you is have you believed in him? Not in truths about him, but have you believed that he is the only substitute for you? That only he can pay for your sin? And have you repented of your sin? Have you seen the ugliness of your sin compared to the beauty of Jesus? And have you turned and trusted in him? So I ask you, everyone in the room, where is your trust this morning? Is it in yourself? Is it in your own goodness? Is it in your own abilities? Or is your trust in the only Son of God who has been sent for you. This morning, I echo what Peter has said in these verses, and I urge you today, right now, in this moment, if you have not done it, trust in Jesus. Don't presume upon the patience of God that he'll wait another day or another day or another day. But right now, I plead with you, trust in Jesus alone. Turn away from your sin, believe in him, and find the pleasure and joy you so desperately want. Psalm 1611, at the right hand of the Father are pleasures evermore. There's only one way to be at the right hand of the Father, and that's through Jesus. If you want joy, if you want peace, if you want satisfaction, I know exactly where you'll find it. Turn to Christ. Look at him. Believe and repent and find the forgiveness of God. That is a beautiful gift this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I don't know the hearts of the people in this room. I don't know what everyone's dealing with. I don't know who's trusting in Jesus and who isn't. I don't know who is really saved and who isn't. But God, you do. And you tell us that our hearts are laid bare before you. God, that you know not only what we think, what we say, but God, you know what our hearts are like. And so we can't fool you, God. This morning, God, I ask you to draw people to yourself. By the good news of Jesus, draw people to see their sin and the ugliness of it and the beauty of Christ and what he's done for us. Father, make that clear this morning. And Father, I pray that you will save people in this place. God, that we wouldn't look the part and be someone totally different, but God, we would truly be trusting in Christ for our rescue. So Lord, draw people, show them their sin and show them the fact that Jesus forgives us and we're so grateful for that. And it's only by his work that it's possible. So Father, this morning for anyone who is trying to use religious service as a way to rescue themselves, show them that only Christ can rescue. That what he said on the cross is absolutely true. When he died, it is finished. Sin has been paid for. So God, draw people. 
help them to see your beauty. And Father, for us as Christians who have already trusted in you, Father, help us to constantly remember that we need you. God, that you are glorified in our lives as we look more like Jesus and as we trust in him. Father, that as we walk in righteousness because of what Jesus has done for us, we actually glorify your beautiful name in this world. So Father, help us to live as faithful servants of the one who gave up everything, who was willing to stoop and wash his disciples' feet. Father, may we walk after your son wherever he leads us. May we be faithful to him. And Father, I pray that as a church, you would help us to not keep this good news of Jesus to ourselves. But God, we would dedicate our lives to telling other people who are dead in their sin, no hope, no pleasure, no ultimate satisfaction, that we might point them to the forgiveness that can be theirs in Christ. Make us instruments in your hands, God, to proclaim Jesus to the ends of the earth. Because you promise, God, that as your word goes forth, people will be saved. Use us, God. Use us. Use Fairhaven. Use us so that more people will worship your name. And Father, as we celebrate Lord's Supper together this morning, help us to do it not as a ritual. Help us do it not as an agenda item. Help us to do it in worship of you. It is only by your Son that we are saved. And this morning we ask you to receive glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.